I know y'all could talk all day, and so can I. It's a gift. So we're going to pick up where we left off last week. We've been in this series, Alternate Reality. And the definition of the word reality is the world or state of things as they actually exist, as opposed to an idealistic or notional idea of them. And what we've been examining is how we look at the world. Do we look at the world through carnal eyes, or do we look at it through spiritual eyes? And as we've learned and gone into this, we're starting to realize more and more that we are a spiritual being. The real us is inside, not what you see. But we operate in a world that we are a part of, but we are not from. We're here. We're in it. But this isn't our home. This isn't what we're striving for. And certainly we walk with a certain characteristic and the authority that Christ has. We're going to expand upon that. But I wanted, if, if you would come up and just share uh, what you were telling me earlier. This is a great story. I like stories. Y'all got stories? You got to tell them. Okay. Yes, yesterday at um, Old Fashioned Saturday Night, our CMA chapter, Heartland Riders, we always have tables set up and we had our, fly, our flag feather flag out and there was a gentleman his name was Mel and he had an old English motorcycle I think it was a panther and there's only two of them that he knew of that's in North America and he has one and it's neat old bike 60s modeled you know and and he parked it with our motorcycles well over the course of the <clears throat> the afternoon I had walked up to him and gave him a rag track and a kickstand plate and just talked with him, you know, and, and introduced myself and, and everything. He was with the uh, slow rollers, and, but he rode his motorcycle instead of bringing his car. So <clears throat> he's parked with us, and he kept coming over and checking on his motorcycle. Well, it's time for him to leave. He, wanted, he thought it was going to rain, you know, and he wanted to get out of there. So he puts his helmet on, and... Karma had went up to him to invite him to one of our meetings. And he goes, you know, he goes, come here, get a little closer. And she leaned in. She was kind of leery at first. He goes, I'm an atheist. And Karma kind of stood back. She goes, well, come anyway. Maybe we'll rub off on you, you know. <laughs> and, and he kind of chuckled and he goes, yeah, you know. And he put his helmet on and he starts, you know, trying to start his motorcycle, kicking it, and you have to set the compression and the spark, and, you know, it's an involved situation there, and he's doing, it. He goes, oh, sometimes it takes so long, and he's kicking and kicking and kicking, and Sharon goes, hey, let's ask him if we can bless his bike, and Karma goes, well, he's an atheist. I said, so, you know? <laughs> So I get a sticker, and Sharon gets everybody, and we go up, and I go, hey, Mel, can we bless your motorcycle? And he's kicking and kicking and kicking, and he goes, sure, you know. So we all laid hands on him and his motorcycle, and we blessed him and his bike and asked for good mechanical sound, you know, operation for his bike and his safety. And, and then I gave him a sticker. Well, I didn't give him a sticker yet. I was holding it. And he goes, and he gets up, and boom, it started right up. And he goes, oh, my, maybe there is something to this. And he took his sticker and put it in his pocket. So I guess the moral of the story is, okay, he's going to be, every time he starts that motorcycle, he's going to remember that moment. And every time he uses that kick plate that we gave him, his kickstand plate, or that utilizes that rag that we gave him to wipe down his motorcycle with, He's going to thank God. 
So that seed's planted, yep. you know. You never That's know. Awesome. That's a cool story. That's man. awesome. Yeah. Now, what I love about that story is, is the entire thing, because it may seem kind of silly. They're like, oh, let's bless the atheist motorcycle. It seems a little silly, right? I mean, but, but it's like, why not? Why not? I mean, what do we got to lose, right? And, you know, and karma has no problem jumping in and being awkward, right? Like the rest of us. But here's the thing. It's a term that I use, you put a rock in somebody's shoe. In other words, when you get a rock in your shoe, every step you take, you, you can't stop thinking about it till you, till you, you stop, you know, take it out, deal with it and all of that. And so it's just taking those opportunities. But it's like, you could think carnally. And just be like, okay, motorcycle's not working. Let's check compressions, check spark, all of that. We'll call you a tow truck. We'll give you a lift, whatever. And it was just, let's just think spiritually. Do you mind if we just pray? You know, it's a moment he'll never forget, especially when he goes to try to start it next time, right? You know, I mean, that's what I'm saying. We're talking about thinking differently, just taking those opportunities. You just never know where you are, when it'll happen, and things like that. So let's go to John chapter 17. So thank you for sharing. That was just a great story. John chapter 17, verse 13. But now I come to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them to you, uh, your word. The world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not pray that you should take them out of the world, but that you should keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. And for their sakes, I sanctify myself, that they also may be sanctified by the truth. So we're seeing this dichotomy. The world and God's people. It's something we saw from the very beginning. These are my followers. They are of the world. I, I am not of it. They are, excuse me, they are not of it as I am not of it. You've got a world that hates them. They hate them because they hated me. Why do they hate them? If that's the case, hate is a strong word, is it not? It's a buzzword we use a lot today, you know, hate speech, things like that, which is basically say something I don't agree with, now you hate me, it's nonsensical. But the thing is, is like, it hates them because it first hated me. Why do you think that is? They're a direct representation of Christ. In other words, if you hate Christ, which apparently the world does, then you will hate the representation or the imager that is Christ as well. You guys see that? In other words, if they decided to go away from being an imager of Christ, would the world continue to hate them? If they made themselves not stand out, if they made themselves not be different, if they made themselves not act like Christ acted on this earth, to do what Christ did on this earth, would they hate them? No. Why? You're one of us. I discovered this at a young age, where I went on a rebellious phase, and I began drinking and going to parties and stuff like this in my early days of high school. You know what happened? I grew up in the church as a Christian kid, lived my life as such. I was a crazy kid that always did weird things of witnessing and all of that kind of stuff. Never prayed for a motorcycle, so the, you got one on me there. Still haven't to this day, as a matter of fact. But, but I was doing stuff, and I just kind of got tired of it. And so I kind of went on this face stuff. You know what amazed me? How many more friends I had all of a sudden. I mean, it was like, I was the most popular guy in school for the first time in my life. Everybody got along. I was getting invited to do all this stuff. 
And then when I finally pulled my head out and realized this is dumb, what on earth am I doing? All those friends went away. They didn't like me anymore. Isn't that interesting? Because I was no longer of them. You guys see what I'm saying? I know it's a silly illustration, but we got to think about this. We have an expectation that the world is somehow going to be drawn to us. No, they're not. They hate the light. They hate it. They don't want any part of the light. It's moments like that where we be the light. We give them something to think about. We put a rock in their shoe. Look at 1 John chapter 2, verse 3. It says, Now by this we know that we know him, if we keep his commandments. He who says, I know him, and does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, truly the love of God is perfected in him. By this we know that we are in him. He who said he abides in him ought himself also to walk just as he walked. So, you're a liar if you claim to say, I know him, but you do not walk as he walked. You do not live as he lived. You do not believe what he believed. You do not do what he did. Do you guys see that? That's not my words. That's what scripture says. So we've got the world hating the followers of Jesus as a result of who they are and who they represent. And now you've got a faction of people who obviously were claiming to know him, but were not living as he lived, which is why John is writing this. Just think about that for a moment. Why would they do that? I don't know. Perhaps they were tired of the world hating on them. When the world is beginning to love the church, we've got a problem. Something's wrong. As we talked about last week, the idea of loving somebody into the kingdom is intellectually accurate, theologically accurate, if you define your terms biblically. But when you change the meanings of words, it no longer works. So let's keep going as we dig into this a little bit more. You see, what we got to understand is that you and I, representatives of Christ on this earth, Jesus didn't show up on this earth as God. He grew as a man. We see that in Luke chapter 2, verse 51. It says, then he went down and with them and came to Nazareth and was subject to them. But his mother kept all these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and men. Jesus as God cannot grow in favor with God. But Jesus as a man can grow in favor with God. You guys see that? Jesus as God does not grow in wisdom. He does not grow in stature. Jesus as a man does. He came as a representation of God. He grew in his understanding of who he was and the will of his father. He grew in his understanding of how God worked. He grew in his understanding of the authority given to him. And how did he grow in that? It was through the study of scripture. We have to do what Jesus did. We have to see how he saw. We have to think like he thought. And what you will begin to see is really who you are. We see examples of this with the 12 spies and David and Goliath and Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego where they have what God said and what I see. And what I see seems impossible. But yet we have God, but God. Right? Why is it but God? It's only but God if we know what he will do and how he will perform. Because otherwise it's not but God, it's maybe God. And that's not what I see. When you see Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they're not wavering of what God will do in the, the moment there. They knew. The moving factor was whether Nebuchadnezzar was throwing them in the fire. If you do, God will save us. If you don't, we'll never bow our knee. 
They were staying true to the covenant. They were sojourners on this earth. You and I are sojourners on this earth. We are here, but we're not from here. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 11, Beloved, I beg you as sojourners and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against your soul. Having your conduct honorable among the Gentiles, that when they speak against you as evildoers, uh, they may, by your good works which they observe, glorify God in the day of visitation. Why, as sojourners and pilgrims, do we abstain from fleshly lust? Because that is not who we are. Our flesh should begin to match the image of our spirit inside. The things we say and do should come from the inside. We separate ourselves from the world. We look different, talk different, act different. But we are sojourners with authority. We are disciples of Christ. We are representative of Him. Just like Christ was a representative of the Father. There were thousands of disciples that Jesus had. Thousands. At one point, He fed 5,000 of them. That's a lot. Neil, you're working the grill. How fun would that be? I mean, think about that. Like, it's, when we think of disciples, we think 12, but that's not what it said. In John chapter 5, verse 24, understanding Jesus' position and his job here, it says, most assuredly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has everlasting life and shall not come into judgment, but is passed from death into life. Most assuredly, I say to you, the hour is coming and now is when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son to have life in himself and has given him authority to execute judgment also because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for the hour is coming in which all who are in the graves will hear his voice and come forth. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life, those who have done evil to the resurrection of condemnation, I can of myself do nothing. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is righteous because I do not seek my own will, but the will of the Father who sent me. And as I told you, Jesus being an agent of the Father on this earth is the Hebrew term shaliach. It just means agent, meaning he represented God. What he did, what he believed, what he taught was a representation of the will of the Father. I only say what I hear the Father say. I only do what I see the Father do. Why? Because he's a representative of him. And so we're going to expand upon what we started last week because it's kind of weird. We got into some, there are a lot of good questions y'all had. Because we don't always read scripture without a filter. In other words, I'm concerned with what it says, not what I was told it means. Not what I think it means, and most certainly not what I want it to mean. I want to know what it says. As the representative of God and a representative of the Father, he strictly was an agent. Why did the world hate him? Because they hate God. Is that fair? Is that what he said? At one point he looked the Pharisee square in the eye and said, you are of your father, the devil. He was a liar from the beginning. So are you. That's a bold statement. Was he trying to love them into the kingdom? Yes, he was. Why? He told them the truth. You see, they thought they had the way to You think it's through Moses. But if you'd believe Moses, you'd believe me. 
You see, that's loving somebody into the kingdom. Not this, I'll just hold back. God loves you the way you are. No, he doesn't. That's why he sent his son. So you don't have to be how you are. How you are is dead. He came to give life. You guys see that? See, that's the idea we've got to get. And our role in that is so crucial. Because something happened that was so powerful. It's the story of the paralytic. Where they bring him to him. And Jesus is standing there. And he says to the man, your sins are forgiven. Who didn't like that? The guys in charge. The Pharisees. The scribes. Calls them the Jews most of the time. They didn't like that. Why? Only God can forgive sins. So Jesus has dialogue with them, knowing what they were thinking. He says, well, which is easier to say? Your sins are forgiven or rise up and walk? Now here's the question. What's easier for us to say? Oh, your sins are forgiven. Why? Because we don't have to wait for them to rise up and walk. There's an immediate response to that we're gonna pray for a motorcycle oh man i hope it starts it's gonna be awkward right you saw the fruits of your the harvest came in baby that motorcycle started in fact when you get done jim's sitting back there you should go pray for his car it's stuck at casey's right now but but i mean that's the thing it's like which is easier to say? Your sins are forgiven or rise up and walk? And he did both. But why did he say that? Because neither is difficult for the Father. And since Jesus did it, and he said it, remember, he said your sins are forgiven. He hadn't even told the dude to get up yet when the argument's going on. And then he said rise up and walk. Apparently, that was the will of the Father. And as an agent of the Father, he did what the Father did. See, so look what it says in John chapter 5. We're going to ask the question, why? Why did he do both? Why? John chapter 5, verse 30. I can of myself do nothing. As I hear, I judge. And my judgment is righteous because I do not seek my own will, but the will of the Father who sent me. Okay? Now that's interesting. Because he said, of myself... I do nothing. Wait a minute. This is the Son of God. He can do whatever He wants. I can of myself do nothing. Was He lying there? I'm just trying to get you to look at Scripture just slightly different. Look at John chapter 6, verse 38. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of Him who sent me. Whose will was He doing? Yep, John chapter 4, verse 34. Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Whose work? What work was God doing? Isn't that weird how he says that? He's talking about because they were talking about bread and all that stuff. Go back and read it. You should read John. It's a great book. I vouch for the author. He says, My food. Now, when we think about that, that's weird. My food is to do the will of my Father who sent me. The will of Him who sent me. My food. What is food? It's what sustains us. What sustained Him 
is doing the Father's will and to finish his work. So why was he here? It's pretty simple. As a representative of God on this earth. It is that simple. But look at Luke chapter 2. We've read this, and we always read the last couple of verses here. But look at verse 41. Remember what gone on. They were in the Passover. They're going to bail. Didn't realize Jesus wasn't with them, right? It's a little home alone situation. Verse 41. His parents went to Jerusalem every year at the Feast of Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they went up to Jerusalem according to the custom of the feast. And when they had finished the days as they returned, the boy Jesus lingered behind in Jerusalem. And Joseph and his mother did not know it. But supposing him to have been in the company, they went a day's journey and sought him among their relatives and acquaintances. This is exactly like the Home Alone story, right? It was so chaotic. There's so many people around. I'm assuming like Aunt Bertha, he's probably over there because she always has the uh, butterscotches. Like that's where he likes them. So that's where he's at. Nothing? Okay, tough crowd. Let's go on. So when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem seeking him. Now it was, with, uh, it was that after three days they found him in the temple, sitting in the midst of the teachers. He was listening to them, and he was asking them questions. And all who heard him were astonished at his understanding and answers. Why? Why were they astonished? Because he's 12 years old. Where's he from? Galilee, Nazareth. What good has come out of that? Nothing. These are not educated folks. He's not a child of the Pharisees. He's not sitting under Gamaliel and hearing these great speeches being given and teaching. What is he doing? He's asking questions. He's listening intently. And they're astonished at his understanding and his answers. And so when they saw him, they were amazed. And his mother said to him, son, why have you done this to us? Look, your father and I have sought you anxiously, as would you. But his response is everything. Verse 49, and he said to them, why did you seek me? Did you not know that I must be about my father's business? But they did not understand the statement which he spoke to them. Now think about this. Your father and I have anxiously sought you. And he says, why? I must be about my father's business. You see, father's used twice in this passage. One referring to Joseph. He's 12 years old here. One referring to Joseph. But whose business was he about? Was he out bidding jobs for his dad? Listen, dad, I just got this sweet gig. We're going to make a pile of money off this thing. No. I must be about my father's business. See, what I'm getting you to see is that Jesus didn't just come out here as God. He was representing God on this earth. And if Jesus was the agent of the Father, then what are we? Because that's what matters. And intellectually, we know how to answer the question. But I don't think we realize the gravity involved and the responsibility that comes with that. Look at John chapter 20, verse 19. We read this last week. Then the same day at evening, this is after the resurrection, being the first day of the week, when the doors were shut, where the disciples were assembled, for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in the midst and said to them, Peace be with you. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. So Jesus said to them again, Peace to you. As the Father has sent me, I send you. Now that's interesting. 
And when he had said this, he breathed on him and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. Which is easier to say? Your sins are forgiven or rise up and walk? You see, what we're seeing here and getting understanding, Jesus, an agent of the Father on this earth. And as the Father sent him, he sends you. And what does that mean? You and I are a representative of Jesus on this earth. We are his disciples. So when he says, if you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. This isn't just vernacular thrown out. These aren't niceties and pleasantries that Jesus is saying. He's giving a mandate. You see, this is where loving into the kingdom comes into play. Is that he gave the disciples, the followers of him, the ability to forgive or retain sins. Why? Why is that? You see, as his representative, they know what Jesus' expectations and requirements are. Did Jesus know what the Father required? Why did he get on to the Pharisees constantly? Why didn't he just embrace him? Why when the rich man came to him and says, what do I got to do? He said, you need to sell everything. He knew what the requirement was. When the rich man said, I can't do that. Why didn't he chase him down and say, it's okay. Come here. It'll work itself out over time. He knew the requirements. You see, Jesus spent his entire ministry preparing his disciples to be his agent on the earth. Everything that he did from beginning to end with his disciples was a preparation for the moment that he would leave. The born-again believer is the express image of Jesus on this earth. So we carry that message. We carry that power. We carry the ability to forgive or to retain. Not based on our standards. Not based on how we feel about that person. Not based on any metric that you and I apply, but simply taking God's preparations and standards and applying them in this earth. Okay, now let's look at this. Matthew chapter 16, we read this last week. Verse 18, what I want you to see is this was preparation time. And I also say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. And I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bond on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. So, the keys of the kingdom implies what? Responsibility for it. Ownership. The ability to open and close the door at will. Binding and loosing were legal definitions. This is not a spiritual warfare thing. This is a legal definition of what you bind is stopped what you loosed is allowed he's giving him authority do you guys see this then we see it come into play in matthew chapter 18 verse 15 it says if your brother sins against you go and tell him his fault between you and him alone if he hears you you have gained your brother but if you will not hear take with you one or two more that by the mouth of two or three witnesses every word may be established if he refuses to hear them tell it to the church if he refuses to even hear the church let him be to you like a heathen and a tax collector. What is a heathen and a tax collector? They are somebody that is not in fellowship with God. A heathen is somebody who is in the world. 
of the world, part of the world. We do not treat them the same as we treat a brother. When I come up to somebody and says, yes, I'm a Christian, I begin to drill down on that because that term is unrecognizable today. I want to know what you mean by that and how you came to the conclusion that you are right with God. And if you can give me a biblical answer, I will treat you like you're a brother in the Lord. Not that you've got to know what I know or act like I act or think like I think or believe every detail that I believe, but simply a brother. But if you come to this idea as like, oh yeah, I believe in God and God loves everybody and everybody gets in, then we are not brothers and I will treat you as such. In other words, when I say that, I'm not treating them poorly, I'm being honest with them. Now in today's culture, that's treating them poorly. They don't like to hear it. But I'm going to be honest. If somebody comes to me and says, you know how I know I'm going to heaven? Because I was baptized as a child. You know what my response is? We need to open the book. You know what I'm saying? Now, that doesn't sound very loving. Am I trying to love them into the kingdom? Yeah, because there's a bus coming at them, and I'm bold enough to yell, hey, watch out. I don't hate them enough to sit there quietly. So, you treat them like a heathen and a tax collector. Look at verse 18. I say to you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. So now we see this term twice, two chapters apart. We see the first introduction. Now we see it put into practice. What was being bound? This person is disfellowshipped. What is being loosed? Whatever you allow. Why is that? Well, look at verse 19. I say to you, if two of you agree on earth concerning anything that they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. What is that a reference to? The Old Testament passage by the mouth of two or three witnesses. Let every word may be established. It was a witness thing. It will be done by them, Father in, my he- in heaven, for where two or three are gathered together in my name, I am in the midst of them. It does not mean that if I'm by myself or if there's four of us, Jesus doesn't come hang out. This is an authority piece because they are acting as his agent. So when two of you agree on anything because it takes two, it's not like Peter can just say, I like it this way and we're going to do this way now. Where two people come together, it's as if Jesus himself is making that statement. He is in congruence with them because they have either bound or loosed, forgiven or not forgiven, allowed or not allowed. You guys see that? I know this is weird. I know this is different. For many of us, we were taught certain things about these passages, but that doesn't make them so. Again, all I care is what it says, not what I was taught. I'm going off the fact that Jesus is preparing his disciples for a very important role, and that role is to be his agent on the earth. You see, as a young boy, he got an understanding of his role as a representative of the Father, Now he's preparing his disciples because there's a time of which he is leaving and they're going to need to know. And remember what he says, I'm going to send the Holy Spirit and he'll bring all things to your remembrance because he prepared them. Look at the preparation, go a little farther. Look, Luke chapter 9, verse 1, it says, Then he called his 12 disciples and he gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases. He sent them to preach the kingdom of God and to heal the sick. And he said to them, take nothing for the journey. No staffs, bag, bread, money. You do not have two tunics apiece. Whatever house you enter, stay there and from there depart. And whoever will not receive you, when you go out of the city, shake the very dust from your feet as a testimony against them. So they departed and went through the towns preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. Now this is powerful. How many people did he send? Twelve. The twelve. 
his 12 disciples. He sent them out. He said, I've given you a power and authority over what? All demons and to cure diseases. So he sends them. What are they supposed to do? Preach the kingdom of God and heal the sick. This is important. He said, take nothing. Don't take staffs. Don't take bags. Don't take bread. Don't take money. Don't even have two, a change of clothes. Why? This is a dependence upon God. And he says, when you enter a house, you stay there, and you'll depart from there. You're not going door to door. You're not going room to room. And whatever or whoever will not receive you, when you go out of that city, shake the very dust off your feet as a testimony against them. Now, that's interesting because you've got to understand the terminology. See, a Jewish person didn't even like to go on unholy ground because they felt like it made them unclean. And that term, wipe the dust off of your feet, is an indictment against them. He's saying, whoever rejects the message of what? The kingdom of God. Shake the dust off your feet as a testimony against them. Is that loving them into the kingdom? Yeah. You have rejected the Father. It's not us. It's not even Jesus. It's the Father. So what did they do? They went, and they went through the towns, and they preached the gospel, and healed everywhere. Wasn't that interesting? But let's go to Luke chapter 10, verse 1. Because now he's going to up the ante a little bit. After these things, so there's some stuff that goes on in between. The Lord appointed 70 others also, and he sent them two by two before his face into every city and place where he himself was about to go. So they're going in front of him. They're paving the way. He said to them, the harvest is truly great, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into the harvest. Go your way, behold, I send you out as lambs among wolves. Carry neither money bag, knapsack, nor sandals. Greet no one along the road. Now, so far, does that sound like very similar to what was said before? Yeah, but who's he sending? We don't know. Seventy people. I don't even believe that's a multiple of twelve. So that means something, doesn't it? It wasn't just the twelve that were following him around. So we've got to understand that there were a lot of disciples that were being made. There were thousands of disciples. So he's taking what was done with the initial 12, and then he does the exact same thing with the 70. But he says, I send you out as lambs among wolves. Is that an indictment on the character and belief system of the people of which they were going to? Yes. Does that mean that Jesus loved them so much that his representatives needed to go out there knowing that life and limb may be at stake? Yep. So were they trying to love them into the kingdom? Yes. But let's go on. Verse 5, but whatever house you enter, first say peace to this house. And if a son of peace is there, your peace will rest on it. And if not, it will return to you and remain there in the same house, eating and drinking such things as they give. For the laborer is worthy of his wages. Do not go from house to house. That should make some of y'all excited. We don't have to go knock doors. We're not Mormons. <laughs> whatever city you enter and they receive you, eat such things that are set before you. Heal the sick there and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. This is good. They've received your message. Heal the sick. Tell them the kingdom of God is here. But whatever city you enter and they do not receive you, go out into the streets and say, into the streets and say, into the public place and boldly proclaim, the very dust of your city which clings to us we wipe off against you. Nevertheless, know this, that the kingdom of God has come, uh, come near you. But I say to you that it will be more tolerable in that day for Sodom than for that city. 
You see, this is Jesus attempting to love them into the kingdom. But they rejected him. They had a choice. They've rejected it. And he says, okay, we've tried. It doesn't say go in there and just embrace them where they are. Love them where they're at. No, tell them to repent. The time is now. When it says more tolerable in that day for Sodom than for that city, can you imagine? There's a lot of shenanigans going on there. We see judgment of God sent against an area. It was seven cities in total. An area. Wiping them out. But were they forewarned? Yeah. Because he was trying to love them too into the kingdom. Woe to you, Therese, and woe to you, Bethsaida, for if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. But it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon at the judgment than for you. And you've got to understand, Tyre and Sidon was not pleasant places. There wasn't anything they liked. Woe to you. And you, Capernaum, who are exalted to heaven, will be brought down to Hades. He who hears you, hears me. He who rejects me, rejects you, rejects me. And he who rejects me, rejects him who sent me. Now let's look at that again, very carefully. Who is the he, uh, or who is being rejected here? It is the 70. He who hears you, you the 70, your message, the things you did, they hear me. Who's me? Jesus. He who rejects you, you being the 70, rejects me being Jesus. And he who rejects me, rejects him who sent me. Who's him? It's full circle, y'all. The agent of the Father gave his authority and mission to the agent of the Son. And when they reject the message of the agent of the Son, it's not them that's being rejected. It's Jesus. And it's not Jesus being rejected. It's the Father. God will never force somebody into his heaven against their will. You see, this is loving them into the kingdom. It's telling them the truth. That does not flow with our culture today. It doesn't flow with a lot of churches today. But what does Scripture say? It's not what I want to be true. Guys, it's a lot easier to just open up your arms, embrace everything, and just be like, God will sort them out. Here's the scary part. He's going to. It should break your heart. How much do you have to hate a person to not be honest with them? Look at verse 17. The 70 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I give you the authority to trample on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall by any means hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rather rejoice because your names are written in heaven. What's he saying? Don't rejoice in the net result, the fruit of your relationship and right standing with God. Rejoice in your right standing with God. In other words, we don't bow down to healing. We worship the healer. You guys see what I'm saying? We look at symptoms. We call it fruit in biblical terms. But the fruit is a symptom of who we are inside. The fruit of the Spirit is a symptom of the changed life, the transforming from death to life. The fruit of the flesh 
is a symptom of the death that is inside. That is why we are fruit inspectors. We look and say, okay, based off of this, I see it. You see, who were the 70? That's the question. We don't think about that. We th- I say the disciples, you think the 12. But that's not accurate. Look at John 4, verse 1. Therefore, when the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus made and baptized more disciples than John, though Jesus himself did not baptize, but his disciples, he left Judea and departed again to Galilee, but he needed to go through Samaria. How many disciples did John have? I don't know either. Well, whatever that number was, Jesus had more. Jesus made and baptized more disciples than John. But here's the thing. Jesus didn't baptize them. The disciples did. See, this is the first time in history where a disciple of a rabbi is making more disciples for the rabbi. It was a representation. Normally, they would bring that person to John and say, John, this guy might want to follow you. Why don't you give him your old sales pitch? Okay? And at the end of the 90 minutes, if he likes what he hears, he'll sign on the dotted line. But here it was. There was an authority that was going out. He was training them to carry his message from the very beginning. He has them prepared to be his agent from the very beginning. All authority had been given to them as a representative of Jesus who was a representative of the Father. Now, when he says preach that the kingdom of heaven is at hand, we've got to understand what was it that Jesus was preaching. And in Mark chapter 1, we see this. Verse 14, now after John was put in prison... Jesus came to Galilee preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Repent. Name me one person that Jesus loved in the state that they were and he left them there. You won't find it. It doesn't exist. You and I have to carry the message of Jesus This is the message of Jesus, to repent, change your way. This is the message of his disciples. Now, here's the key. We have the ability, with the authority that's been given to us, to go into all the world and preach the gospel, lay hands on the sick, and they will recover. We will see signs following as a result of the proclamation of the gospel going out. But that's not just the key. Yes, we have the ability, but here's the problem. We don't treat it like it's a responsibility. And it is. You see, Jesus didn't suggest to go into the world. He didn't suggest, listen, if you guys don't mind, could you all hang out in Jerusalem for a few more days? Like, just just a couple. I know you got things to do. I know you're busy. I know your wife's getting on you a little bit about, you know, you haven't been home much. But could you just do me this, this little favor? Would you mind if it's not too much trouble? Now, I know if football's on, all bets are off. Okay? That's not what he said. See, these people had devoted their lives to him and as such that they were willing to give up everything. Here's why we don't treat it like a responsibility. We know it's in us. We know we have the ability. We're even seeing that we have the ability to forgive and to retain sins. I know that sounds sacrilegious. I know you're waiting on a lightning bolt to come from somewhere. But is that what it said? Okay? It's not because we get to say, yep, that's sin. Nope, that's not sin. You're good. That's not it. It's because we know the will of the Father We don't treat it like it's a responsibility because we regard everything 
according to the flesh. In other words, we are carnally minded. If we're spiritually minded, would you say that Jesus was? I think you would. Did he regard anything according to flesh? No, because when he was hungry and he said, make these stones into bread, he said, no, we don't live by bread alone. Would you have made those stones into bread? Me too. You're given the ability to have authority over every kingdom, all of it, if you'll just simply bow your knee. How many people would? A lot would. He always responded spiritually. See, in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 16, it says, therefore, this is Paul talking, from now on, so from here on out, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we have known Christ according to the flesh, yet we know him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Now, as a result of all of this, we don't look at somebody based off what we see. We're looking inside, right? If they're in Christ, they're a new creation. The modifier there is the key. If. It doesn't say if they claim they're in Christ. You see, the disciples' responsibility, and you see this throughout the book of Acts, was to ask questions. To know, I mean, think about this. In Acts chapter 19, where I joke around and they said, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And we've not so much as heard of this Holy Spirit. And I'm like, yeah, most churches, right? He's like, well, then in whose baptism were you? Why is he asking that question? Because they were claiming to be disciples. He's drilling down on the question. Well, we were baptized by John. Aha, okay, that's good. But there's more. You guys see that? There's dozens of examples of this. All things have become new. Now, all things are of God who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ. All things are of God. What things? All the things. But we're in context here talking about this transformed life. All things are of God. He has reconciled us to himself through his agent, Jesus Christ, and has given us. Who's us? This would be Paul. Was Paul there with Jesus? Was Paul one of the 12? He wasn't even one of the 70. He wasn't one of the 5,000. He was the one on mission to wipe all of those people out. He's given us, meaning himself, and everybody who's a part of this body here, the ministry of reconciliation. Well, what is that? Well, let's read it. That is that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them, and has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Now let's break that down again. He's given us the ministry of reconciliation. He wasn't imputing their trespasses to them. In other words, he wasn't bringing condemnation. He was bringing them a lifeline. He's committed this to us, the word of reconciliation. It is God in Christ, the Father in Jesus, bringing the world to himself. Verse 20, now then we are ambassadors for Christ. Now we are imagers for Christ. Now we are agents of Christ. And it's as though God himself were pleading through you and I, where he dwells, 
we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. Is that loving them into the kingdom? By the biblical definition, it is. It doesn't say, you just be where you are. Maybe you're right. I'm not judging you. No. We condemn nobody. But this ministry has been given to us. It's not just an ability. It's a responsibility. Who's going to do it? If not you, then who? If not me, then when? He made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. In right standing. Guys, I know this is heavy. But we've got to think about this. Every day is this opportunity. Every single day. You might be standing around watching a dude not able to start a motorcycle. For real. What do most of us do? We'll call AAA. He said he was an atheist. What do most of us do? Turn the other cheek. Walk away. I didn't slow y'all down. It's as if God, through us, imploring, be reconciled. You guys get that? You have the ability and you took the responsibility. And we pray that God will send more, right? It's not our job to convince them. It's our job to be honest. You've got to love people in the kingdom, the biblical way. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, I just pray that you open our eyes that we can understand. And our hearts to know from you and our ears to hear from you. And we will not be moved by the direction of this world and the church inside of this world, but that we will be true disciples and take these responsibilities seriously. That all your commands and all the things that you said, we'll take them seriously. That we could go through life and we'd be just fine. But you've given us this ministry. Forgive us for ignoring it. Lord, I pray that you open up doors of opportunity. That we'd have the guts to walk through them. Lord, I pray that we would never hate somebody so much to let them believe the lie. May your compassion and mercy flow through us. May your power flow through us. Lord, I thank you that for increased opportunities and that we're willing to walk through them. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you guys. We'll use some help getting some tables and chairs out under the tent, getting things set up.